Welcome to the 217 Winter Workshop. Nothing is impossible with God. 2016 was the year of families. And no doubt, one of the greatest highlights was the August Global Leadership Conference where the Holy Spirit sent out the 11th Crown of Thorns mission team, Dubai, led by R.D. and April Baker. This is now the pillar church in the Middle East. Just a month after being sent out, this team of just eight disciples, joined only by Elena and myself as visiting disciples, had at their Friday September 23rd inaugural services, 56 in attendance. In their four months of existence, God has taken this pillar church from eight sold out disciples to now 17 sold out disciples, more than doubling. And yet really the Europe family is probably best expressed in our seven geographic missions conferences. You know, we have so many disciples scattered around the world that just don't have the means to come to the Global Leadership Conference. And so as one person says, if Moses can't go to the mountain, bring the mountain to Moses. Bring the kingdom to these isolated churches and disciples. Are you with me there? In February, we had the Brazil Missions Conference. And there in Sao Paulo, we got to see what is perhaps one of the preeminent campus ministries of all time. 50 sold out disciples at the number one campus in South America, Uspich. Then later on in February, we went to Mexico City for the Latin American Conference, where I believe is the greatest gathering of remnant last year. The Mexico City Church grew the most of any church around the world. 83 disciples going from 59 in January to 141 today. God is moving. In April, the Holy Spirit took us to the Eurasian Missions Conference in Moscow, Russia. And if there's any church that in some ways defines family with all of us, it's the Moscow Church. Because gathered, we're not simply Russian disciples or American Christians, but global disciples where the kingdom was preeminent above any nation. In June, we traveled to the Austro-Pak Rim Mission Conference in Manila, celebrating their first year where they saw 135 people baptized into Christ. Later on in June, we went to the African Missions Conference in Lagos, Nigeria, where the 10th Crown of Thorns mission team was planted. And as Andrew and Patrick shared, that little mission team of 11, joined by eight remnant people, have had over 50 baptisms and now number exactly 70 sold-out disciples in Lagos, Nigeria. In October, the Holy Spirit took us to London to the European Missions Conference. And there, it was easy to envision the evangelization of Europe in this generation. 
And not only that, but you see, the great London church is now split into four geographic regions, setting them up to multiply in the great city of London. And then in November, we got to participate in the first South Asia, Mrs. Thompson, Chennai, India. There for our Mercy Day, we went to a leprosy hospital. On Sunday, we saw 12 baptized into Christ. And that Sunday, we saw the Bangalore mission team sent out, which are seven disciples who have now multiplied to 13 sold out disciples of Jesus Christ. You are a part of a worldwide family. This is not some movement of men. This is the very movement of God. And now we're on the precipice of 2017. And for God's sold out movement, the year of the impossible. The title of my lesson is simply Impossible Fruitfulness. And the theme scripture for the lesson and for the movement this year, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Here we read this in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be a child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary? asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. What an incredible scene that we see here the great archangel Gabriel come to a perhaps 14 year old young woman, most likely as tradition holds it, an orphan, because even after this announcement by the archangel, she went to spend three months with her older cousin, not back to her family's home. So it is most likely she was an orphan. And the angel comes to her and says, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, if you had an angel come to you and say those things, you too would be a little scared. What does God have in store for me? And the angel says, you are going to bear the child of God. And you're going to call him Jesus. And she goes, well, how, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. This is what's simple. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and that's going to do it. <laughs> and then the angel says, you've you got to remember, your, your older cousin Elizabeth, who was said to be barren, she's now in her sixth month of pregnancy. For nothing 
is impossible with God. And marriage just answers with complete peace and covetous. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. She then goes to Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth goes, Blessed are you, mother of my Lord. Mary goes, what do you mean? She says, well, the baby inside of me just jumped because he's so excited that you are now pregnant with my Lord, the future son of God. And it ends in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. What was amazing among Mary of all women of all time was that she so believed that nothing was impossible with God. That's why she was chosen to be the mother of God. Nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, our first challenge this morning is for you to believe anyone can change. Anyone can change. You're going to Chennai, India for the missions conference there. It was, it was one of the, I can say, not only the highlight of 2016, it, it was one of the great highlights of Elena's and my lives. We saw five incredible appointments of incredible young people. Simon and Elizabeth, their primary Tamil speakers because Tamil's the main language in Southern India. They just were appointed and they lead a hundred disciples in the Chennai church in a Tamil-speaking ministry. Then there's the flamboyant Christy and Maria. They are amazing. They're the mission team leaders for Bangalore. And then there's a young man named Parthapan. When Parthapan was a young boy, he literally lived in a small village about 10 miles outside of Chennai. And he was literally a sheep herder. His parents were poor and illiterate. By chance, some would say, but we know it's by God. <laughs> he had the opportunity to take tests, exams, that allowed him to receive scholarships to go to elementary school, then on to high school, then on to college, and then another exam to go on into even working on his PhD. And this is when he became a baptized disciple while working on his PhD. Now, here was the challenge. Right as he was being studied with, the school that he was going to, the Madras Christian College, said, we're very excited, but we're moving this program north to Delhi. And your overseeing professor has been asked to go there. And in order for you to continue your PhD, you're going to have to go to Delhi. And the brothers laid it on out. Hey, we don't have a dynamic sold out church in Delhi. If you want to get baptized, you're going to have to stay here with God and the family. Parthavon makes the decision to give up his PhD work. And it was in a little thing called mathematics graph therapy. And he gets baptized, surrendering it all. Just a few weeks later, the college comes back and says, listen, we have decided 
to allow you to have a special scholarship and stay here in Chennai. We're going to give you a new overseeing professor and you can continue your PhD work. In the meantime, Parthabon is now the campus minister of one of the most dynamic campus ministries in the world called Christian Chronicles. And that Sunday, he was appointed an evangelist in the kingdom of God. He's just one year away from receiving his PhD in mathematics, and he had his overseeing professor right there giving him a standing ovation for becoming an evangelist in the kingdom of God. And also in the front row was his mom and dad who are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ. My challenge to you is to believe that nothing is impossible and that anyone can change. An illiterate to a genius. Anyone can change. If I was to pick out a couple that would give us the faith to believe that anyone could change. It would have to be the heroes of San Francisco, Jason and Sarah Dimitri. Sadly, with the devastation in the ICOC in 2003, Jason and his then wife, the daughter of Lansing County Underhill, fell away from the Lord. They had been zealous teen workers. In the meantime, Lance sees each one of his children falling away, and he knows he's got to get to Portland. For people in that day, they saw Portland as the last remaining bastillion of hope, as the only church that really believed that discipling was a command of God. And that it was God's dream and will for the evangelization of the nations in this generation. Lance was part of people from 26 different states that were moved by the Spirit to go to, for many, like my wife, a place called Portland, Oregon. And after Lance got there, he says, bro, I've been trying to get my son-in-law, Jason, to come. Can you talk to him? Because he wants to stay there in Tampa because he's making over $100,000 a year. I get on the phone. It was a quick talk. I said, Jason, do you, do you want to save your family? He said, absolutely. I said, what is worth to you? Everything. I said, that makes it easy then. You can leave that job and just move to Portland. <laughs> Two weeks later, he was in Portland. They came to Portland, but it, but it wasn't easy. They were supposed to be on the LA mission team in 2007, but they came down early and fell away. Years pass, and Jason, by this time, loses everything. Loses his wife, pretty much everything in his life. And he eventually comes in contact with a young man named Colton Roan, the leader of the South region. And it was pretty amazing, because Jason's an older fella even back then. And Colton's still a younger fella now. 
But Jason had the humility to be willing to listen to a younger man teach him the word of God. And Colton did such an outstanding job of restoring him and pointing him to God. And I was a little bit concerned how quickly this was done. And so I pulled Jason aside early that morning just to, you know, just to kind of check things out. And I'll, I'll never forget. I said, Jason, are, you think you're ready to be restored? And I'll never forget what he said to me. Brother, I am done with this world. I think you're ready. The next week I come back, and it was, it was an incredible thing. It was, Jason was just going around, and everybody kind of accepted. He's the new number two guy in the South region. <laughs> he was the armor bearer for Colton. It was, it was absolutely, amazingly shocking, but nothing's impossible with God. In the meantime, in 2003, I had the opportunity to meet a young woman when Elaine and I first moved to Portland named Sarah Travis. She'd been baptized the year before, and she was one of the 25 that were still left in Portland. And when we arrived there, we had four college students and one teen. The teen was Colleen Antelon Chalinor. And Sarah was one of the four college students, and, and she'd be the first to tell you that at that point in time, she was still struggling with CR demons. Well, time passed, and after a year of being down here in 2008, the Holy Spirit sent out the New York mission team, and she says, I want to go. And so she literally puts herself in a situation where she becomes an intern on the New York City mission team. Because she wanted to be with this guy she was dating, who was an intern. Sadly, this guy is turned to the dark side, falls away, just totally crushing Sarah. And after a few months, the, the woman leader of the New York City Church, I was, I was talking to her with Elena, and I said, well, well how's, how's Sarah doing? Because you know how it is, you just kind of look out for certain brothers and certain sisters. I mean, that is family, right? How's, how's Sarah doing? Well, you know Sarah. What's that mean? Well, she still just hasn't recovered. And, you know, honestly, I had to drop her. I said, well, how many people are you discipling? Well, I'm discipling eight people, eight sisters. And Sarah can't get into the top eight? No. I said, well, okay, are you open to her coming back to L.A.? So I talked to the Williamsons, and the Williams go, oh, can we have Sarah back? It'd be so awesome to have Sarah back. We'll take care of her. And even then, they go, maybe she can come with us to London. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, the Lord raises up Sarah to be leading the South region before she goes to London. And she shared with me, she says, yeah, I was there when Jason was restored. But I didn't go hug him. I didn't congratulate him. 
because I felt this attraction. And I knew I just couldn't go there. Well, the Holy Spirit takes Sarah to London. And there was a little something that was stirring in Jason, too. He eventually gets on Michael Williamson's good side, goes over to London and starts dating Sarah. They get married and then they come back. They leave the South region and the Holy Spirit sends them out in 2013 to plant the Las Vegas mission team that becomes the fastest growing church in the movement. And then the Holy Spirit whisks them away to San Francisco in now one of the great pillar churches in all of the family of God around the world. If a derelict or fall away can change. If a broken hearted CR young woman can change. You need to get a conviction that anybody can change. I found this as, as an evangelist, like many other evangelists, a women's ministry leader, I have great faith that other people can change and that everybody in your family can be baptized pretty quickly. I still remember though, how brokenhearted Matt and Helen Sullivan were when after their daughter, Amanda had graduated college, she says, dad, mom, I'm moving out till I had to be with a boy. Who? Well, it's Joey, Joey Favela. It's a fall away. I just think this is what I want to do. And yet Matt and Helen prayed. Father, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. A month or so later, Joey calls up Matt and says, Matt, I'd like to get engaged to your daughter. And Matt, he says, you know something? You guys are going to do what you're going to do. But you're doing this all wrong. What do you mean? You know what I mean. You guys need to get in a car, move down here to Orlando, start studying, get restored, and then get married. And that's exactly what they did. On November 6th, Amanda and Joey were restored to the Lord. And November 19th, I had the honor of presiding over their wedding ceremony. And just last week, they asked Matt if they could lead the teen ministry in the Orlando church. If two kingdom kids that are falling away can change, you've got to get a conviction that anyone can change. I, I understand Matt. As an older remnant guy, we struggle with the Cedia from time to time. And when things happen in our family that we feel are out of our control, it just sends us to a dark place.
And like mad, I've prayed every day for every person in my family by name. And last year, out of the clear blue sky, in June, my brother-in-law, Bob Little, was restored to the Lord. And of all the people in my family, I mean, Bob had had a stroke and was definitely incapacitated to a degree, but literally of all the people in my family, who would be the least likely person to, to be restored? It'd be Bob Little. <laughs> and yet that was the one God chose to be restored. And so now, at our uh, terrific West Region New Year's Eve party, uh, uh, church service, excuse me, um, Ricky had us all write out our impossible prayers, three, for this year. And I, I swallowed hard, and I had to pray before I even put down my prayer requests. I prayed for my three children to be restored and for their spouses to be baptized. And I prayed for my father to have an extra long life and for my mom and dad to be baptized. And then I prayed for Elena's mom and dad to also be baptized in 2017, the year of the impossible. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to believe that anyone can change. Anyone can change. Even that person you don't want to disciple anymore. Anyone can change. Even the most derelict of people in your family, anyone can change. This is the year of the impossible because nothing is impossible without God. Make out that prayer list today. Turn to Acts chapter 12. Our second point. Any discipling relationship can change. In Acts 12, in verse 25, the Bible simply says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In their trip to Jerusalem from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas may have even been in the very house church the day that Peter kept knocking at the door. <laughs> Let me in! And they all thought it was just some vision, angel, or whatever. But there's no doubt they were in the city at that time. And John Mark, he was the fair-haired, young evangelist to be. I mean, after all, his mom and dad were the owners of the upper room where Jesus and the apostles celebrated that first communion. That's the same upper room where the Holy Spirit came on the 120. As a matter of fact, it was most likely the same spot that Peter's knocking on the door and let me in. And so they take John Mark, and then the Holy Spirit sets them aside for the first missionary journey, and they ask John Mark to go with them as their helper. He makes the mission team. He makes the first mission team. 
chapter 13, verse 5. But then we read a very tragic statement in the midst of this first missionary journey. Verse 13, chapter 13. From Patmos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, no one really knows why John left them. And I think the Bible is silent because it's the principle that's of issue. He left the mission. A coward. Now, he still was in the kingdom, but he, he left the mission. He left his post. Time passes. The Great Jerusalem Council comes together. The church is reunified that, yes, the Gentiles don't need to be baptized to be saved. We are saved through Jesus Christ when we are baptized into him and contact the blood of Christ. But then we read in chapter 15, verse 36, these words. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where he preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Interestingly, we find right here that Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, who was his physical cousin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Yeah, okay, he's a brother, he's saved, but we, we got to have stalwart disciples on the mission team. Barnabas goes, that's it then. I'm just going to take him and I'm going home. I'm taking John Mark with me. And the Bible does not say they left commended. The Bible goes out of its way to say, Paul and Silas were the ones that were commended to the work to go back to the Galatian churches. However, as time passes, this is about 50 AD, we go ahead in time to Paul's dying months in 66 AD, and we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 these words. Verse 9. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he's loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. One of Paul's preachers had fallen away. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Demaltia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. At the very end of his life, only Luke was loyal to Paul and with him there. And Paul says, yep, but I want one other guy with me as I, as I enter on into glory. Get me, John Mark. Bring him by my side. He's the one that's helpful to my ministry. You see, any discipling relationship can change. I'm reminded of another Timothy, a young man that I first met at the Portland Jubilee in 2004. He'd come from the Montreal church. And Tim Kernan was a very excited young man. And he expressed he wanted to be a part of everything in Portland. He even goes back and persuades the preacher in Montreal 
to not just join the movement, but to have the whole Montreal church join what was then called the Portland movement, later called sold out movement. And then literally in a matter of months, things begin to change as this preacher is, quote, persecuted by brothers. Of course, we understand he's persecuted by false brothers. You can't persecute a Christian and be a brother. That's not a real brother. That's why the Bible calls him a false brother. And I told, I told Tim, you got to flee. You got to flee. Take those who love the Lord and want to be sold out and establish a remnant group in Toronto. That he did. And after a few months, we were getting ready to go to Portland. And I said, hey, Paul, the mission team is heading to Portland. Our inaugural service is May 6, 2007. How about you and Leanne join us and be part of the mission team? He said, oh, boy, that'd be a great honor. I said, here's the problem. We really don't have any money. <laughs> he says, no problem, bro. Uh, I'll bring $10,000. I said, ah, that, that's, that's great. That's good. That's good. Tim shows up at his door, our door shortly before the inaugural. I said, bro, that's so awesome to see you. Bro, it's so awesome to see you. And, and we're good to go with all the finances, everything. Yeah, we're trusting in the Lord. What's that mean, trusting in the Lord? Well, there are a lot of expenses. Well, how much money do you have? Really nothing. Anyway, I said, okay, I'll still make you a Bible talk leader. So this is early on in the work, and you just, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, God gives you the people to work with. So there was Tim. I said, okay, you, you lead the Bible talk down here in Long Beach, and I'm going to come down and watch it. just want to see kind of where you're at. He goes, oh, really? Bro, I'm coming. He meets me at the gate, escorts me in. I mean, it, it was like Tim had found the candy shop. <laughs> he led the Bible talk and he escorted me out. He said, well, bro, how, how did I do? Bro, I have a policy that I never tell a brother how he did on the day he speaks or does a Bible talk. No, 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 no. Tell me just how did I do? Bro, I, I, don't, I don't really want to say. <laughs> bro, I can take it, just, bro, but you gotta tell me straight. No, no, bro, please tell me, please. Okay, Tim, that was probably the worst Bible talk I've been to in the new movement. At that point, he didn't give me a hug, I just, I just walked on out. That week I went to Chicago to preach and then I, did, I sinned against him. In my speech, which I found out later he was listening to, I talked about how you had to believe in people even when they led the worst Bible talk you'd ever heard. I come back to, and I really mean that I, I sinned against him. I, I really blew it there. I didn't ask him if I could share that. So basically, Lance comes to me and he says, bro, I think Tim's avoiding you. I says, I know he is. I haven't seen him for two weeks. 
Lance says, you know, he's a very sensitive young man. <laughs> okay, I'll go talk to him. And, um, you know, we talked, he forgave me. And it says, it's now time for you to leave. You need to go to London if you're, if you're going to get any money to be full-time, and you've got to start the London Remnant Group. He comes on back. He later goes to Africa to establish the Kinshasa Remnant Group because he spoke French. I send him to India to help with the work there. He comes back, and he leads in L.A. He not only plants Paris, but then he comes back and plants Toronto. And now he's back again. And I can literally quote the scriptures. I have no one else like Timothy. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But Timothy has proved himself as a son with his father. He has served with me in the work of the gospel, Philippians 2, 20 and 22. Let me tell you something. The city of Angels Church has never been stronger under the leadership of Tim and Leanne Kernan. Tim. You say, well, Tim is, Tim is one of your most mature brothers. I said, yes, and that's one of the ones I've got to focus the most on. Tim and I talk on the phone three to four times every day, no exaggeration. And he takes the discipling every time. Amen. That's why the Lord has raised him and Leanne on up. On. Tim is an awesome disciple, even while being a leader. You see, any discipling relationship can change into a best friend relationship. Sometimes it's not a matter of just a relationship crashes. Sometimes in the kingdom relationships drift. And there's another brother that I, that I love dearly as a son. Though he looks my age, that's Corey Blackwell. <laughs> I started discipling Corey when he was a one-year-old disciple. And together, we, we, we planted the Cross of Switchblade ministry in South Central. Together, we built the South Central region, and Corey led it to a thousand disciples. He then became the youngest world sector leader. At the time that I gave him the charge of the Middle East because his mother was Muslim, we only had three nations in the Middle East with discipling churches. Six years later, we had 21 nations. And then his mom was baptized into Christ. And yet, and yet, Satan, Satan is evil. He destroyed, of course, family, took out his wife. She fell away in terrible ways. Devastated Corey. He was shamed by the blood brothers. And you know, the Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. The greatest cost for Jesus, according to the Hebrew writer, was shame. And shame will take you out. Corey drifted in a spiritual desert for years. 
And then, you know, Lou Jack, he's all over Facebook. He keep, kept inviting Corey over and over and over again. And finally, in October 2010, Corey and his youngest, Avery, visited the City of Angels Church. A month later, a month later, Corey, in his mind, was placing membership, but we all know he was restored. And a month after that, he was on partial pay from the church, and he began the Southland region, which is nine disciples, which in time grew to 150 disciples. And now, of course, the Holy Spirit's taking him to Chicago. But in the midst of my traveling and the busyness of his family and all of the great things that Corey's doing, our relationship began to drift. Just, it just wasn't one day, it wasn't an event, it wasn't anything traumatic. It's just we began to drift apart. And I, it just came upon me. You know, I, you know, I told Elena, I said, you know, babe, I just don't feel that close to Corey. And this guy's been with me the longest. And I said, you know, babe, after we go to Mexico City, after the GLC, can we go to Chicago? I just want to be with Corey. And that's what we did. Well, Elena had to get back. And so Corey says, bro, can you do, can you do staff? I said, oh, sure. I said, hey, that, by the way, that would give us all day Monday. And he says, yeah, that'd be great. We could just hang out all day. <laughs> and in my mind, I remembered that scripture in John 1. When John the Baptist told his two disciples, Andrew and John, hey, there goes the Lamb of God. And the two guys, Andrew and John, start following Jesus. And Jesus picks up on it and he turns around and he says, what do you guys want? Uh, Lord, where do you live? And Jesus, I think, with a smile says, come on, guys. And the Bible simply says, he spent the day with him. Right after he spends the day with them, Andrew gets super evangelistic, brings Peter. This is something about a whole day. And I talked to Corey, I said, Corey, you know something? I've never met your dad. And you know something, Corey? I, didn't you play at Crane High School and like you were like super famous as a high school guy? Well, yeah, bro, I, I was there, and I was also kind of famous at, at Eveston High. And I said, well, how about this? How about in the morning you show me all of where you grew up, and then we have lunch, and, and then um, we can go in the afternoon, and I'll show you where, where I went to elementary school and, and um, junior high, and I graduated from high school up north in Libertyville about 20 miles away. I said, that, that sounds awesome. So I said, okay, show me, show me stuff. So we get in the car, we're driving all around. And I said, you know, are we going to see your dad? And he goes, yeah, 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 we're going to see my father. I'm driving around, I, I just had this kind of gut inside of me. So something's not right here. Corey, do you not want me to be with your dad or something? Is, is your dad prejudiced or something? Or you're not ashamed I'm white or something, are you? Or, um... Oh, no, 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 no. Basically, okay, bro, I got to tell you. The last time I was with there, my dad and I had this huge fallout. He's Jehovah's Witness. And I challenged him about where he's at spiritually. He got super mad. Basically, just didn't, said he didn't want to see me again. I said, bro, you can't let that stop you. 
So we slowly drive to his father's house. There. <laughs> so we stop. I says, that's the house over there. I have my hand on the door handle. And Corey goes, you know, bro, why don't you stay here and I'll go talk to my father. Sure. So I'm sitting in the car. <laughs> Ten minutes later, he comes back. And he doesn't, doesn't have a grin, but he's not frowning. He says, my dad said he would see you. Awesome. <laughs> so we go up in the porch, and there's his dad, you know, sitting in the porch. And Corey sits down. I mean, you could cut the tension with a knife. And so I sit there, and, and Mr. Blackwell is 81 years old. I said, Mr. Blackwell, you have an awesome son. Not a word. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I asked Corey if I could come to see you because my wife just wrote a book and I wanted to give you a copy of it because your, one of your granddaughters has a picture in the book. Oh, really? I said, yeah, here's the book. It's, it, it's, that's my wife right there. And it's called Elevate. She's the global revolution for women. I said, let me show you the picture. She says, that's Corey and it's Avery. That's when she was the valedictorian of her high school class. Corey, you never told me she was valedictorian of the high school class. Well, I, I thought I did, Dad. I said, I'll tell you what, let me, let me show you some other pictures. So, so we go through some other pictures. At the end of it, things are loosening on up. I said, you know, Corey's a best friend. And uh, you, you have an incredible son, terrific uh, grandchildren. In the meantime, then, his, his wife of 30 years, not Mary, not Mary, not Corey's mom, comes on up. And by this time, Mr. Blackwell set the Elevate book down on his side, and she picks it up, and she sees the picture. And she says, who's this? I said, that's my wife. She wrote that book. She says, I'm going to read that. And then Mr. Blackwell, kind of having fun, he goes, woman? You are not going to read that book first. I am going to read that book first. <laughs> so by this time, we're all laughing. We're sitting on the porch. Mary leaves, and we, we, we say our goodbyes. And I'm walking off the porch, and we're walking to the car. And, and, and for whatever reason, I turn around, and there's Mr. Blackwell reading Elena's book. That's the last time I saw him alive. Because then the Lord quickly took him a few weeks later. And when he was dying, Corey said he's slipping away. He texted me. I said, bro, I'm coming. I came at the funeral. Our brother Corey was so strong. He was hurt because his dad wasn't a disciple. And at the funeral, Corey goes, you know, bro, thank you for coming, but why did God take him? He wasn't a Christian. I said, you know, bro, God is God, and I'm not. But here's what I think. I don't think your father was ever going to become a Christian. And God says, I've got to take him. So Corey can become the new patriarch of the Blackwell clan to influence everybody to become true disciples of Jesus Christ.
Now, Corey and my souls are knit together like David and Jonathan. And there's no drift. How are your discipling relationships? Are you estranged? Have you had a falling out? Maybe someone you don't even disciple now. Go get them. Believe in them. You got to believe that any discipling relationship can change. Don't believe that how it is is how it's going to be. Believe it or not, the ultimate discipling relationship is called marriage. Even that discipling relationship can change. Praise God. Amen. Finally, let's go to Ezekiel 37. One of my favorite passages. Our first point, anyone can change. Second point, any disciples can change. And finally, any church can change. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth amongst them. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, oh, sovereign Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons of flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army of God. Right here, Ezekiel was given the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. These were human bones. They were shattered. They were torn apart. As the scriptures indicate, it was the house of Israel. It was dead. And the Bible says that where bones were very dry. And God asked the great prophet, can these bones live? And Ezekiel was a smart prophet. He says, Lord, you alone know. <laughs> and then he says, you prophesy to these bones. You preach the word to these bones. And he began to preach. And as he preached, bone came to bone and there was a rattling sound. Anytime you preach the word to a dead church, there's going to be some rattling sounds right there. And still with all the rattling, though flesh came on and there was no breath, he says, you keep preaching. And she says, so I prophesied to them. And breath entered them. And the Bible says, they stood up a vast army for God. Any church can change. The church is modern Israel. 
You know, the Holy Spirit took Elena and me to Portland when everything blew up in the face of the Crete letter. And after leading 135,000 disciples, God, by his grace, allowed me one more shot, and I got to lead 25. And they were hurt, because that church, just a few months before, was 300. And you know the story. Elaine and I weren't very strong, but we, we gave what we got. And I determined, come what may, I was going to preach the word. And we preached the word. We had a night of atonement, and we preached the word. And then everybody knew as the baptism started to come, that God was blessing our repentance. In three years' time, the Holy Spirit brought disciples from 26 different nations around the United States. The baptisms came. And three years later, we had become the fastest growing church in what was left of the ICOC. And we had exactly 489 disciples when I and I left for Los Angeles. Now for the ICOC, it's still a bunch of dead bones. As a matter of fact, one of their so-called prophets, Gordon Ferguson, wrote in a book this year, Three Lives, the Story of One Man and Three Movements. And his man was a harsh critic of the sold-out movement and still is an enemy. But this is what he says about the ICOC. He says, we have 667 congregations, 381 of which baptized between 1 and 10 people last year. And 122 had zero baptisms. Thus, of our 667 churches, 503, 75% baptized between 0 and 10 people in a year's time. And just let me state the obvious here. When 75% of our congregations are baptized between 0 and 10 people a year, things are not close to going well. Even their own false prophets say the church is dead. Like Jesus said of the church of Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Yeah, you still have a few people that are alive in it. Is there any hope for those people? Absolutely. We can preach the word. They can get the core convictions that disciples of God, that God has given us a vision to evangelize the nations of this generation, and then they will join God's new movements. I know that any church could change because in 1979, the Holy Spirit sent Elena and me to Lexington, Church of Christ, right outside of Boston. At that time, the church had 60 members. They'd only seen two baptisms in three years. In our first year of ministry, 30 people left, but God gave us 103 baptisms. Many years later, when the Holy Spirit took us to Los Angeles, in 2007, we had 42 sold-out disciples. A remnant group of 12 joined us. And in our first year, God gave us 104 baptisms. And I always like to think, that's God. That's God saying to us, hey, 
the glory of the present temple is going to be greater than the glory of my former movements. You know, I do believe that we need to get a conviction that any church can change, any region can change, any Bible talk can change. What does it take? The preaching of the Word of God and the call to obey it. I remember when Vic Senior was just leading the East Region, it was full of a bunch of young people, and they had trouble getting everybody to church because they only had three cars in the entire region. So Victor's preached, he says, here's what we're going to do. We will only evangelize in the parking lot because everybody in the parking lot owns a car. Three years later when he left, they had 25 cars in the region. This is church building. Preach the word. Expect obedience and God will give you impossible fruit. I've heard amongst some that you're going to have zero growth during the times of missions contributions. If there was any situation that was most dire in 2016, it really had to be the Dallas-Fort Worth Church. And this was led by people that I love with all of my heart, Tyler and Shea But they'd struggled for a long time. It had come to the point that Matt and I were saying, you know something, I'm going to have to have to talk with Tyler. They're going to have to go back and get more training either in L.A. or over in Orlando. And I said, you know something, Matt, let's just try one more thing. I said, Matt, Tyler loves you. Shay adores Helen. But you guys don't really have the time. And even though you're the most equipped, you got to have an evangelist that has the time to be on the ground to affect change. How about, how, this is pretty radical. How about Richie and Elizabeth McDonald of D.C.? <laughs> Matt goes, I don't know if that's going to go good because they're younger. I said, you know something? If you're a humble disciple, you don't care how old somebody is. Richie and Elizabeth went there, knowing that I was coming in July to have the sit-down talk that Tyler and Shay are going to have to move because of ineffectiveness. They spent 10 days with them in June. They went back in July for a few days. In September, they had a visit. And then in the fall, during missions collection, which the DFW Church got, in 18 weeks, they had 19 additions, 17 of which were baptisms. In some of our churches, we have racial imbalance. And I'll never forget, early on in, in the old movement, I had two young guys preach for Sunday church. We were at the Shrine Auditorium. We had about 3,000 church. And these were two young prophets coming out. One of them was... Dave Traver, who was Korean, and yellow was Corey Blackwell, who was, most people would call him African-American, though actually Corey's everything. <laughs> After they preached, they both did amazing. I was up on the stage doing some stuff, and I just happened to look out, and, and to my left over here, here's Corey, surrounded by throngs of African-Americans. 
And I look over here, and here's Dave Traver, and all the Asians just, just couldn't get enough hugs. And then, oh, there's the white people. And the black people. I said, you know, there's a lesson here. You know, if you have racial imbalance, you've got to have the vision and the fortitude to move your Bible talks, to move your disciples where there's a race that's predominant that you're going to baptize those kind of people. you got to believe that any church can change. Sometimes there's gender imbalance. In the women's, early on in the City of Angels Church, in the olden days, in the 90s, we had so many more women than men. And then we get even more women because we had women days. I said, you know something, this is, this is not good. I said, guys, I got an idea. Why don't we have men's forums? Oh, bro. No, guys don't want to come and be with guys. I said, you know something, there's a group called the Promise Keepers that are filling up whole stadiums with only men and the call back to God and to lead their families to God. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to have men's forums. Over the next few years, the men outbaptized the women. And by the time we resigned, there were more men in the City of Angels Church, excuse me, the Los Angeles ICOC Church, than women. Any church can change. In some churches, in some churches, we have gender insensitivity. The only people you see up front are men. That's kind of weird. In the Bible, in Micah, in Micah, it says, in chapter 6, verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt. And redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. And also Aaron and Miriam. The leadership of the Exodus wasn't just Moses. It was Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, Aaron didn't call the shots. Miriam didn't call the shots. But they were part of the leadership that collectively led the people. Just like in a little family. And the church is a family, is it not? Ultimately, the dad, the husband, makes the final decisions. But... It's heartbreaking when there's not a mom in a family because she adds the goodness, the sensitivity, the gentleness. And in a very real way, every child wants to be raised with a mom and a dad. It's not that dad doesn't make the final decisions, but we need that feminine influence. And so it is in the church. I just can't believe it. Many times I get these emails about some of the challenges in, in the kingdom, and it's only addressed to the brothers. The sisters are not copied. That's going to end. You want the sisters involved in helping to make difficult decisions? Let's include them on the emails. Let them know what's going on. <laughs> Secondly, the sisters do not lead the church. They don't have authority over a man. But let me tell you something. We need to have some sisters on stage beyond just the song leading. We need to see our moms and our grandmoms up there leading us to have that tender heart to God. Are you with me right here? Sadly, we also have ethnic insensitivity. 
A church like Los Angeles is in a city that's 50% Latin. And yet I've been to, I don't know how many services over the past few months, not one single region has taken the time to sing a Spanish song. And one of the great joys in the olden days in, here in the City of Angels Church was every Christmas at our Christmas service, we'd all sing Feliz Navidad. I mean, that's the only song us gringos really know in Spanish. But, I mean, it's a great song. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. We, we know what it means. But it pulls people on in. And it says, yes, we respect you. We love you. We're part of the family. You're going to influence. Your, your culture is something to be glorifying God in and through. Many of our churches have talent voids. They first of all say, well, all the awesome disciples left on the mission team. Well, it's kind of true. But what is an awesome disciple? Has it anything to do with talent? No. An awesome disciple is someone that loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you call people to love the Lord their God without their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You make awesome disciples from the pulpit and one-on-one -on -one in discipling relationships. Don't settle for anything less than awesome disciples. I think also there's been kind of a move to, well, we're a little bit scared of the four-year colleges. Oh my gosh, UCLA, Harvard. Let's go junior college. That, you know, we need to remember nothing is impossible with God. We have a few great campus ministries. LA, Chennai, Boston, Manila, Sao Paulo. Maybe there are a few others, I forget. These ministries can conceivably evangelize their areas of the world, or at least that they're part of that nation. Most of our other campus ministries, you have a talent void because you don't have the guts or the faith to go after the five talent men and women on the difficult campuses. And it's time to go after it, believing that anyone can change. <laughs> on your seats, you should have received the updated Crown of Thorns project. I'll simply say this. Jesus' vision is becoming a reality in our day, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The movement really starts in 2007 with the planting of Los Angeles because the Portland church falls away in 2008, leaving a distilled group of 42 here in Los Angeles. And yet, the Crown of Thorns project doesn't even begin until 2009. It's not even eight years old. And when we first presented it, the only city of the 12 right here that was agreeing was Santiago with Matt and Helen who plant the church down there. All the rest were red and there were a couple purple. But think about what God has done in less than eight years time. London 2010, Sao Paulo 2011, Mexico City and Paris 2012. Sydney, Chennai, 2014, Moscow, Manila, 2015, Lagos, Dubai, 2016, and come August in Metro Manila, Philippines at the GLC, the Holy Spirit is going to be sending out the 12th Crown of Thorns Church to Hong Kong, 
China. Nothing is impossible with God. And you've been a part of it. On page two, you see Operation Eagle. In essence, this is our plan over the next seven years to have discipling ministries in all 50 states of America. You say, but we're only 15 and we got 35 to go. I got to beg you to believe nothing is impossible with God. There's a list of people that are now very familiar to us. I want to share their names with you. Carrie Fisher. We knew her as Princess Leia, Star Wars. Debbie Reynolds, George Michael, Fidel Castro, David Bowie, Nancy Reagan, Janet Reno, Morley Schaefer, Pat Summitt, Buddy Ryan, Prince, Florence Henderson, Arnold Palmer, Gwen Hill, Tom Hayden, Muhammad Ali, and Priscus Scheidecker. They all died this year. But our sister, Prisca, is going to be greeting us all when we get to heaven. See, that's why we gave our $3 million. It's for Prisca to make it. No, it's it's worth it just for Prisca. You cannot put a price on a soul. And I hope from this point on out that no leader ever complains about missions contributions. Placed in the casket by Philippe was one of Elena's books because Prisca's last project was to translate it into French, of which Philippe is finishing. You know, it is incredible to think that less than 10 years ago, the Holy Spirit moved 42 disciples down from Portland that now have multiplied through the Holy Spirit to over 5,000 disciples in 72 churches, in 31 nations, on all six populated continents of the world. This is not a movement of men. It is a movement of God. A few years ago, at our first World Sector Leader Communion, we pledged to each other, we are family to the end. A year ago, we pledged to each other, when communion, we are family into eternity. A few days ago on Wednesday, we lifted our bread and we raised our cup. And together we pledged in one voice, we are family to do the impossible. Thank you, and God bless.